back with you here again this morning. As I was driving into Contahawkin this morning, I saw the towering spire of the church and just reminded me of the unique place that God has put you here in this community. My prayer continues to be that the Lord will use you as a light on the hill. May this be a church that is faithful to proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus to this community and to the nations. Invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We will be looking together at the first six verses. There's actually a portion of a larger section in this first epistle, but we're going to focus our attention just on these verses this morning. 1 John chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, But does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Please bow your heads with me. Each of us in this room, Heavenly Father, has come to this place with various thoughts and burdens on our minds and hearts. And as we come now to this study of your word, we have a risk that we might tune it out. Oh God, would you do what you alone can do and take our hearts and soften them to your word your spirit seal this word on the hearts of your people? Would you confirm the gospel in our hearts? Would you confirm the truthfulness of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life? And would you take those who might be wandering this morning and draw them to the fold of the church of Jesus Christ? Teach us, feed us, and nourish us for his sake, we pray. Amen. There are perhaps many things that would define American culture. If you are from a rural setting or a suburban setting, and in some context, even an urban setting, one of the features that stands out in American lore and American culture is the fair. The county fair, the town fair, the state fair. So what is it about the fair that is so compelling? Well, certainly it is cotton candy. It is corn dogs and all those other vegan sensitive foods. 
There's the tilt-a-whirl, there's the Ferris wheel, and there's that whole experience of being at the fair with others who are there to enjoy themselves like you are. But I think there's one thing that defines the fair more than any other. It's the game called Whack-A-Mole. Some of you may have played Whack-A-Mole, you know how it works, you have the mallet in your hand and holes all over this board in front of you and a mole pops up and you're supposed to whack it on the head just as you do so another one pops up and you spend time whacking one mole after another the problem is they don't stop coming until your money runs out i would suggest to you that for many in the church of jesus christ doubt is just like that It just constantly pops up. And we do what we can to put a nice thwack on the head of that doubt. But just as we do, it pops up in another way. Doubt can be a formidable foe in the hearts and minds of God's people. Perhaps you are one who has struggled with doubt. Do I really belong to Jesus or perhaps your doubt is more substantive even than that is Jesus really the way the truth and the life how can I know for sure sometimes those doubts are quiet they come from within our hearts in those still moments when we're alone sometimes they're very loud in our ears as advocates of other ideas, other ideologies, other religions would pound new ideas in our minds, leading us to begin to wonder about our Christian faith. Doubt can also take the form of seeing those who were in the church, perhaps their whole lives, face some difficulty in their lives or in the church and leave the church never there to return. It can be disillusioning. It can be doubt-producing. One mole after another. One of the wonderful gifts of the letters that were penned by the Apostle John is we don't have to wonder why he wrote what he wrote. He tells us every time. If you look at the end of John's gospel, he says that these things are are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. This letter in chapter 5 at the end of the book says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So let me put it this way. John's gospel is written that you might believe. This first epistle of John is written that you might know that you believe. The gospel of John is about the new life that Jesus produces. The epistle is about what that new life looks like. What is the spiritual DNA of a child of God? Gospel is about that initial faith, that moment of conversion. This epistle is about a vital faith, a faith that 
perseveres. What does it look like? The gospel calls unbelievers to believe in Jesus Christ. This first epistle calls believers to continue to believe and to know that you belong to him. So three points this morning. How do I know that I know? How do I know that I belong to Jesus Christ? Three things. First, I know Jesus, and that is shown by how I think about sin, how I think about Christ himself, and how I think about the words of Christ. That I know Jesus is shown by how I think about sin, how I think about Christ, and how I think about Scripture. First point, we actually find in verse 1. Look there again. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This particular juncture in this epistle, John reminds us that when we are brought to faith in Christ, something happens in our hearts to where now we find sin's attraction repulsive. We are put at odds with sin. In this letter, John describes sin in a number of ways. He uses metaphors like light and darkness, holiness and sinfulness. He speaks about sin in the context of blindness. In chapter 3, he defines sin as lawlessness, opposing the law of God. But he also talks about the genetic roots of sin, that those who continue on in sin, according to chapter 3 as well, are of the devil, whereas those who are pursuing truth and righteousness, their genetic disposition is shown as well as being of God. Chapter 5, John describes sin as wrongdoing. The gospel, John is pointing out, changes our spiritual attitudes, our orientation, our inclinations. We now love the truth and hate the lies. We love God. We hate idolatry. We love purity. We hate impurity. But here's the problem. What do we still do? We still sin. So how do we know that we belong to Jesus? Deep in the fabric of this first epistle of John is is not just a hatred for sin, but a repulsion at the fact that sin is still attractive to us. In other words, yes, we're still compelled by sin. We still fall into sin, but we hate that we fall into sin. We hate the the very attraction of our hearts that temptation brings us. We hate that we still want to sin. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. Many of you will remember that. Paul says, I do the very thing I hate. The very thing I don't want to do is what I do, and the thing I want to do, I don't do. Evidence of the Spirit of God in your life. 
For only those who are compelled by the gospel are going to hate what God hates and love what God loves. How do you know? What do you think about sin? Any who would bear a cavalier attitude towards sin make a mockery of God, a mockery of Christ, a mockery of the gospel. Isn't it interesting? This verse begins with a common epithet in John's letters. My little children. John is showing that that hatred for sin is because our hearts have now been taken over by our Heavenly Father. And what does the child of the Heavenly Father do but long to please his or her father? How do you know that you know Jesus? It's embedded in your heart. There's a repulsion for your desire still to sin. Embedded in your heart is this longing to please your heavenly father. Back in the mid-17th century in London, we find what we now call the Great Black Plague. The bubonic plague from 1665 to 1666, which in its final iteration was such a major epidemic that over one-fourth of London's population was eliminated in one year. Massive plague. Just a few years after that, a pastor by the name of Ralph Venning wrote a book about sin. He entitled that book, The Plague of Plagues. I just want you to hear a few of the ways in which Pastor Venning speaks about sin. First, he says that sin is worse than any affliction. Keep in mind the context. He walks us through the great perils that the saints of old have undergone, the mockings, the floggings, the chains, imprisonment, the, those who were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, impoverished. He goes on and on, destitute. But Venning says that this plague of plagues, sin, is worse than any affliction. Isn't it interesting that perhaps the greatest idol in our culture is comfort. We want more than anything else to be comfortable. I am with my wife looking for a new bed. And as we shop for beds, we find that everyone claims that their bed is the most Comfortable, right? We want comfort. And yet Venning describes that there is nothing worse than our hearts being comfortable. That affliction is not worse than sin. Sin is worse than affliction. He goes on. Sin is worse than death. Now listen to his logic here. 
Yes, death separates family, it separates friends, it's the cause of suffering, and it terrifies us. But then he says, all the terror that is in death is put there by sin. In other words, no sin, no death. Sin is worse than death, he argues. Then listen to this third point. Not only is sin worse than any affliction, not only is sin worse than death, he says that sin is worse than the devil himself. He says this, and I quote, Sin can do without the devil that which the devil cannot do without sin. In other words, we are compelled to sin apart from the direct influence of Satan. But the only thing that Satan, the only tool in his arsenal, is sin and temptation. And Venning is arguing that sin is worse not only than affliction, not only than death, but also than the devil himself. And then fourthly, and perhaps most strikingly, he says sin is worse than hell. Sin is what makes hell, hell. Hell only exists because of sin. John, in this first verse, then says, My little children, I write these things to you that you might not sin. What was it that Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery in John's gospel? Go and sin no more. You see, it is not our repudiation of sin that saves us. It is the salvation that Christ brings us that causes us to repudiate sin. And what John is saying to us, people of God, if you want to know whether or not you truly believe, what do you think about sin? Do you hate sin like God hates sin? And are you repulsed by your ongoing attraction to it? That I know Jesus is shown by how I think about sin. Secondly, that I know Jesus is shown by how I think about him. Look at verse 2. Actually, let's read the second half of verse 1 into verse 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Our sin problem, its scope, its depth, its horrid nature is beyond our minds and hearts to begin to understand. And yet what we we find here in God's grace is that the Jesus who is proclaimed throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, is the one who comes as the righteous one who forgives sinners. After all, What standing do you and I possibly have before a holy God apart from a holy intercessor and mediator? Answer, none. 
Don't miss the marvelous description of this Jesus who is our advocate with the Father. He is called an advocate here. This is a a legal term. It's a description of Jesus coming alongside us as our advocate who stands before the Father and says, this one I have purchased with my own blood. Here we see that this Jesus is described as the righteous one. The advocacy that Jesus carries on for us, his intercession for us, his ongoing standing in before the Father in our place is due to his holiness, his righteousness. If you look back in the, in the chapter that's prior, we see that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Think about that. It means that it would be unjust for God not to forgive you of your sins. Do you understand the marvel of that? How is it possibly grounded in justice? Precisely because Jesus is the righteous one. And it is because of his righteousness that you are forgiven if you are a child of God. And do you understand, therefore, because of the righteousness of Christ, that God's righteousness has been met in full, and we have an advocate that stands in before us, who is righteous, the righteous on behalf of the unrighteous. But it is because of the righteousness of Christ that God would be unjust not to forgive those who are his. You talk about grace. God does not look over your sin as though it's no big deal. He won't because he can. But what you and I have is an advocate with the Father who stands before him, whose righteousness overwhelms our sin, whose light overwhelms our darkness, whose life overwhelms our death whose fullness overwhelms our emptiness. Jesus, who is described here in verse 2 as the one who is the propitiation for our sins. That is probably not a word that came from your lips this week. What is propitiation? There are two primary categories in Scripture of the nature of forgiveness, expiation and propitiation. Expiation, the expiatory work of Christ Jesus, concerned the sin itself. But sin is personal. Propitiation is not just about the sin, but about the sinner. So that God's wrath is met in full, his just wrath against you is met in full as that wrath is poured out on his son so that Jesus personally intercedes for you personally. That he is that advocate who is the propitiation for our sins. If I can put it in this way, Jesus saves us from God. He saves us from the wrath of God so that we might be saved unto that very same God and welcomed with full embrace as little children. 
it is no wonder then that John in his description of how we know what we know, it not only concerns how we think about sin, but how we think about this Jesus. Are you amazed at him? Are you stricken with awe over a God who would forgive you in this righteous one? Have you ever lost the wonder that you as a foul sinner, condemned and rightly so, has been forgiven? Praise be to God. The righteous forgiving the unrighteous righteously. How do you know? How do you know that you belong to this God? Well, you know first by how you think about sin. You know secondly by how you think about Jesus. One of the early traveling evangelists in American culture was a man by the name of Gypsy Smith. I don't often quote Gypsy Smith. In fact, I don't ever quote Gypsy Smith, except with this quote. Gypsy Smith said, there are three wonders in heaven. When I get there, I'm going to be marveling about three things. First of all, by who's not there that I expected to be there. The second wonder of heaven is that who's there that I didn't think had a shot. But he says the greatest wonder of all is that I'm there. Now that'll preach, but it's terrible theology. You see, there ought to be wonder that we are there, but there ought to be glorious expectation for us to doubt Our salvation is to doubt the efficacy of the righteous one who is our advocate. And this Jesus loses none of those whom the Father has given him. He will raise them all up on the last day. If you belong to him, you cannot not rise from the dead. You cannot not spend eternity in bliss with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. How do you know today? What do you think about Jesus? He is the one who is our advocate with the Father. He is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. This scope doesn't have in view every person without exception but everyone from every tribe, tongue, and nation over the course of all of human history upon whom God has set his affection, he will lose none. How do you know? How do you know that you know? How do you know that you know Jesus? You know by how you think about sin before the holy God. You know by how you think about this Jesus. Thirdly, look at verses 3 through 6 with me. And by this we know that we have come to know him if 
we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. One of the features of a child of God is not only how he or she thinks about sin or thinks about Christ, but how he or she thinks about the Word of Christ, the Word of God. Here we see this frame for us in a couple of different ways. If we keep his commandments, verse 3, if we keep his word, verse 5, then we will know. Jesus tells us in John's gospel, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Here, We're reminded of that very same thing through the pen of the Apostle John as he writes this letter from Ephesus. As John writes and considers the the fledgling first century church and wants to encourage them in their faith, he says, if you want to know that you really know him, then what do you do with his word? Do you find his word compelling Do you hear the voice of the chief shepherd as one of the flock, as a member of the flock of God? So how do you know? Well, we keep his commandments. Now please understand, you are not accepted into God's family because you keep his commandments. You are brought into his family because Jesus did because he died for you. But the efficacy, the power, the force of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on your behalf is such that you have a whole new way of living. And your ears are attuned to his word. You long to do the will of the Father. Jesus says it was his food. It's ours as well. On what are you feasting? What are the delicacies that you find most compelling in your heart and in your life? Are you keeping his commandments? Do not for a moment follow the very common logic and varying quadrants of the church around the globe that the the gospel frees us from any obligation. The gospel doesn't free us from obligation. It enables us to do that which we are called to do. To put it more personally, God the Holy Spirit through God the Son is given to you personally so that you have the full power of the resurrected Christ to keep his commandments. But John, a good pastor, knows that we still sin. You see how all this ties together. It is the word of Christ that reveals to us the sinfulness of sin. And as we see that, as we see the holy commands of God and see how we don't keep them, we hate our sin all the more. We love our Savior all the more and want our lives to be shaped by his word. We keep 
his commandments. We also think differently about God, about self, and about life. Verses 4 and 6 speak about an integrity that the gospel produces, that our speech and our lives align, that what we say we long to do and that which we do aligns with that about that which we speak. Gospel produces integrity. I didn't think I would make it. We have six children, and I'm now teaching our sixth how to drive. And I remember telling my wife through the years, there is just no way I cannot do this with six children. Well, I'm still standing, and I'm still teaching. But if there's an area of hypocrisy that we as parents undergo, it is the way in which we instruct our children to drive. Don't drive as I drive, drive as I say. Right? Okay, I'm the only one. But one of the striking features of the gospel is that it calls us listen carefully, it calls us to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy with regard to our emotions. That our will and our purpose and our decisions are not grounded in how we feel, but integrity with the gospel says, I do not operate based on how I feel, I operate based upon what God has said in his word. That is a holy hypocrisy. May we reject that which our culture tells us is number one, that you define your existence, you define your reality. That is not a gospel mandate. It is evidence of the sinfulness of sin. And here, we are called to have the speech of God on our tongue and the life of Christ as our model. Look at verse 6. Walk in the same way in which he walked. That is not only an obligation, it is an abundant privilege to walk in the footsteps of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. For his commandments are not burdensome. Why? For we have his resurrected spirit within us. So how do you know that you belong to Jesus Christ? How do you know that you are a recipient of gospel grace? How do you think about sin this morning? How do you think about Christ this morning? How do you think about God's word? As we close, I want to just camp on one phrase here in verse 5. Let's look at it again. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. That love of which John writes is not some sort of ishy, squishy sort of love. It is a love that is defined by the will of God. What does the child of God want to do but please the will of God? How do we know what the will of God is? God has spoken. And so as I 
come to obey his word. I'm evidencing that I love him. Why do I love him? John tells me, chapter 4, we love because he has first loved us. So how do you know that you belong to God in Christ? You hate sin and you love Christ and you love his word. Oh, not perfectly, no. That's why you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who said, my will is to do, my food is to do that will my Father has given me. Dear brothers and sisters here at Christ the King, I urge you, I exhort you, plead with you to fix your hearts on this Christ, on this gospel, on these truths, for in them is abundant life. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. Hate what God hates. Love what God loves. If these things are true of you, you belong to him. And on that last day, he will not say oops, for he cannot. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, has Thank you, Father, for the beauty of the gospel. Forgive us our sins. Oh, God, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us from this faulty notion that we are those who sit on the thrones of our lives. Forgive us for allowing those chains to bind us. Free these, your children, here this morning to walk in the way in which Jesus walked, in the freedom of obedience, because of the abundance of his redemptive grace. No, Father, if there's any in this room that does not yet know Jesus Christ by grace through faith, would you be pleased to use your word and your spirit now to draw him or her to Christ by faith? As we go from this place, may we know the bountiful blessing of what it means to be the children of God, for such we are. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I invite you to take.